Thanks so much, Taylor. I so appreciate that. Good morning, everyone. What a beautiful morning. It is so good to be with you. So how many of you read the blurb for this week? Anyone read the blurb? Okay. All 12 of you. Good. Very diligent. All of that, it's not happening. None of that is happening. This is a com- it's all scrapped. Last minute, Todd was scheduled to preach. We talked on Friday, and he goes, J- we had a little huddle. He goes, James, what if, instead of me preaching, you do a full overview of Romans? It's Friday afternoon. I have some grading to do. I want to do a little writing. And I go, I'm all in. I thought about it for like 30 unsanctified seconds. Like, ah, yes, I'll do it. So he is actually up right now ministering at Hume Lake with Brooke and Denise to hundreds of, of folks up there at a retreat. And, and you're stuck with me. So you have a booklet you've been given. You will, all caps, not be using that this week. It's going to be something they're doing after this week. This week is a standalone overview of one of the most magisterial communications in all of early Jesus following. The letter, Paul's letter to the Christian communities, probably on the poor side of town in the Trastevere region of Rome. And so we're gonna do an overview of it. And I'm doing something so weird. I actually get a little sick thrill of last minute sermons. Like when it's not my fault that it's last minute, but it's last minute. I kind of feel like a liberation. Like there's no expectations. People can't expect anything from me. I worked on this thing for a couple days. And so I hope that's in your heart and mind today. And if you're new with us at the River Church, that's the kind of caliber you can get from us every single week. Now, normally our, our, we prep a little bit more than that. But to be, to be fair, I've spent a lot of time thinking about Romans, talking about Romans to teach classes that involve Romans. So, so it's something that I just thought to myself, let's do it. Okay, I just spent three minutes introducing the fact that I'm doing this last minute. Barb's happy about that, so I'm happy about that. Anto, my man, you. Everyone say hi to Anto. All right. One of our beloved lifeguards keeping us safe and whole on the beach. I also did something very strange. I put all of my notes in the Bible. I just wrote them in. I have a few Bibles. I own it. I'm loaded. I own a few Bibles. And I put them all in the Bible. So I'm going to try to see what happens holding the microphone and flipping through the Bible to preach. Okay, so overview of Romans, 16 chapters, longest Pauline letter. That should be easy in 28 minutes. I've entitled it A Symphony of Salvation or Epic Pauline Playlist or Messianic Mixtape. Okay, so here's the approach I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take on this. The ancient world was a boring place. That's something you should all know. Terribly boring. If you were there, the first thing you'd realize is I'm bored, and I'm probably in pain, and I probably smell bad, and my teeth are horrible. Those would be most of your experiences, all of your experiences. So when a letter is delivered to a small community of Jesus followers in the packed-in city of Rome, it's really exciting that, those first years were pretty, this is like Stranger Things season four just dropped and they're going to binge it all weekend long. They are really excited about this particular letter. We're a little bit more tantalized in our world. We have a, a few more distractions, like billions more distractions. And so I decided to kind of recapture some of the beauty of this, not recapture it, but to uh, layer on top some contemporary thoughts 
I put a playlist together, okay? So that's something I do. You all know. Sometimes I put music to stuff I read. Here's the game plan. This sermon is going to be a lot like my favorite ride at California Adventure. Ron, hit that first song, would you? Ron's the man, by the way. And you all know what ride this is? So right now you just buckled in. You're strapped in. You're sitting back. You smell some orange groves or something? I don't know. All of a sudden, you begin to lift off, and now... Here you are, full IMAX 3D. You're flying through the air. Ladies and gentlemen, what ride is this? Soaring over California, the greatest ride of all time. Okay, so this is what the sermon's gonna be like. You can keep this playing for a second, Ron. If you don't like one section of Romans, you should pray and repent about that. But don't worry, we'll be moving to the next section so quickly, and you'll be diving in, looking at a passage, and then immediately soaring to the next section. Introduce the broader theme of it. We'll dive in, look at a few exemplary passages that sort of illustrate that larger theme. I'll probably give a reflection or two, maybe an application. And then, boom, we're off to the next adventure in Romans until we make a soft and beautiful landing in chapter 16. So, let's see. I haven't timed this message, but I will keep it in a half an hour, I promise. All right. Thanks, Ron, so much for that one. Okay, so Paul writes this letter. Simple introduction. There's a reason for it. Won't get into all that, but I will say this. This early community is having some division issues. They're not really functioning as a healthy whole family. There are some divisions, and those divisions happen to, they seem to run along ethnic lines. So there's some folks that are uh, Jewish, Christian, uh, Christians in the group, and there's some sort of Gentile Christians in the group, and they're in Rome, and there's some issues. Also, Paul's never visited them, so he wants to give a long communication of who he is and his ideas um, in Christ. And then, and this is why we're looking at it here at the river, it's also this moment where Paul, unlike almost anywhere else in all of his letters, he stops and says, I just want to unveil the good news. I want you to see it in all of its splendor, in all of its shiny contours, and I'm going to take my time and really spell it out. And so Romans is a pretty exciting letter, and we'll be unpacking it in smaller bits. But I want to start off this symphony of salvation in six movements. So movement one, you can hit that first song. This is a song uh, by James Horner called Ludlow's, and it's from the Legends of the Fall soundtrack, one of my favorite songs. And each, each song will kind of shape and have a feel for that section, or at least my interpretation, okay? So let's read. This is, or just listen too. You can just listen. It, that's how the early audience first heard it. So that's legal as well. This is Romans. I'm just gonna read a couple pieces of chapter one, Paul's introduction. Here we go. Paul, a servant, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the euangelion, the good news, the gospel, the great, greatest story ever told of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures regarding his son. His son, who in his earthly life was a descendant of David, and through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith, trusting in his name, and also 
you are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Christ. To all those in Rome who are, and this is a great line, agapetois, the beloved of God. Is it, is it playing, Ron, or is it not playing? Oh, there. They're all perfect. Thanks, Ron, my man. Loved by God and called to be his set-apart holy people, grace to you and peace from our God and Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on, you can keep it playing, he goes on discussing his plans to visit Rome, why he hasn't been there and how he hopes to go there. And then this great gold nugget in the middle of chapter 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the euangelia. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who trusts. First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. He's addressing that ethnic division right up front. For in the good news, in the gospel, the righteousness, the justice of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Thanks, Ron. So he begins this letter with an introduction, alerting folks what you're about to hear is the greatest story. And Paul is communicating it in a very attractive and meaningful and powerful way to the ancient audience. Us, later readers of ancient Mediterranean literature, which the New Testament is, we may miss a few pieces. The affective part of it, the emotional part of it, might be missed on us. But the amazing content and theology and truth is everywhere present. So that's the first movement, the general introduction. The second movement, he immediately jumps to that which, by the way, the larger story of the Bible immediately jumps to. If you've ever looked at your Bible and you hold up the creation portion of the Bible, the part that tells us like God's intention in creation and God's hand in creation and all those great things, it's like two pages, like two pages. And then immediately the larger story of scripture jumps into that which every world religion is, has to address. I used to teach World Civ 4 at UCLA, uh, not World Civ 4, I'm sorry, History 4 at UCLA. It was Introduction to the History of Religions. And we go over 10 religious traditions in 10 weeks. And one commonality in every, I don't care if it's, you're talking about Baha'i, I don't care if you're talking about Taoism, I don't care if you're talking about Buddhism or Islam or Christianity or various forms of rabbinic Judaism, or whatever religion, every worldview and religion has to address that there is something wrong or something missing. It's like human beings, we're not like trees that just kind of grow up and like, I'm a tree. Here I am. A tree doesn't wake up and go, what's wrong with my world today? Why do I feel as if there's an ought, something that must be fixed? Or Trees don't do that. We do that. We all do it. It's not just a Christian thing. It's a human thing. And here Paul jumps straight into it and says, if you want to hear the, the sort of Jesus following big story, it's going to start with a great God and a great creation and this beautiful intro, but it's going to get dark quickly. Something that we all kind of know. We don't have to do a lot of study to realize this world has some deep pain in our own lives and in the world. So this next song 
as we move into a chapter, uh, rest of one through three, it's this really powerful symphony. It's a symphony of sorrowful songs uh, by Henry Goretzky, which he was writing a Polish, a Polish composer writing in the shadow of Auschwitz. He wasn't there, but post-World uh, War II Poland. And a lot of his music, and this being probably his most popular piece, is a reflection. It's a collection of actually three songs. The first song is a 15th century lament of Mary over Jesus dying. The second one is inspired by some writings etched into the wall of a Gestapo prison by a prisoner, a child yearning for its mother. And the last one is a a folk song. I'm sorry, it's emotional. It's a beautiful symphony, though, and it really does explore the deep sense. We all kind of know that there's a problem. And so in this next chunk of Romans, Paul is going to go straight to that and say, here is the root. Here's where the leak is coming from. This is where the rot is finding its home and spreading. We're not just going to spray Lysol on it or put some potpourri. We're going to go straight to the gushing wound and say, here it is. And so it begins. So you can hit play, Ron. Thank you so much. I'll start from Romans 1, verse 20, and I'm just going to hopscotch through from there. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen. Paul's saying, look around. Being understood from what is being made. So people are not, they're without excuse. For although... Humans knew God. They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings. Birds, animals, reptiles. So it's this movement from recognizing God from both his creation and that sort of innate sense that humans have of the ultimate of God and the deformation, the mutation of that into worshiping small things, idols, and sometimes literal idols, sometimes little things that we make God, sometimes ourselves. And from this, God God gives them over. Again, it's not a picture of God coming with the hammer and smashing them. It's a picture of a toddler screaming to get out of the hands of their parent. And finally, as that kid grows up and as that teenager, the parent says, I'm not going to hold you then. If you want to run, run. And God gives them over, it says. He gives them over to their sinful desires. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who's forever praised. Amen. And then Paul reviews in the next several verses a whole list of vices, sins, corruptions, rebellions that were probably more characteristic of non-Jewish community in Rome. Sort of some pet sins that their culture embraced and that they indulged in. But then he quickly turns to the more sort of, you might think of the Bible, the Torah-believing part of the community that 
that could look down their noses at these dirty Gentiles doing their weird, dirty things and say, oh, how sinful are these people? I'm so glad I'm not like them. And he turns in chapter 2 and he says, you therefore, you have no excuse who pass judgment on someone else. For at what point you judge another, you're condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment, you human judges, you do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based in truth. God is judge, not you. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, yet you do the same things, you think you're going to escape God's judgment? And he lists a series of characteristically Jewish sins. That, and Paul is a Jew. He's writing an in-house letter here to other brothers and sisters who are of the descent of Abraham. And he says, we all have similar problems. And then chapter 3, still dealing with this original problem, he says, what shall we conclude then in verse 9 of chapter 3? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. We have all, we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of, this, of sin. There's no one righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one who truly seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good. No, not even one. And finally in this movement, Verse 23, a very famous passage. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 27, where is boasting? Who can boast, in other words? Who can say, I'm a good little boy. I'm a good little girl, not like those sinful jerks. Who can boast, he says? No one. It's excluded. It's excluded. Thanks, Ron, for playing that. Um, I want to make like one main observation on the logic of this section. As he gets to what is the gushing wound, what is the sort of first movement bringing about corruption? This is his answer to it. And it was in verse 21 that God's divine nature, God's goodness, God's power, God's character, God's attributes, the creator was known and there was a connection human beings balled up their fists. And he'll later go on and talk about the story of Adam, talk about how we share in that. But they'll ball up their fists and say, no, God, we will do our thing. We'll make our little world in our image and worship that. My father-in-law is an electrician, a great electrician, an awesome electrician. And when we're doing our renovation stuff, um, we're almost done with, we're doing a backyard now, much better than inside. Um, and we're doing some electrical thing and you take all this time installing this really cool fixture and it's beautiful and you do the drywall and it's just gorgeous. Oh my word, it's wonderful. And you go to turn on, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And you're like, what? This is terrible. And you do full Clark Griswold at the end of Christmas vacation. Like, why won't you work? And I finally call my father-in-law. Hey dad, uh, we're having trouble with this. Can I FaceTime you? Yeah. And he goes, he looks at it and goes, hey, uh, is it plugged in? It's like always oh, his first question with any problem. Is it plugged in? And you're like, of course it's plugged in. You think I would call you if it wasn't plugged in? It's not plugged in, right? Like the original problem, the source of all of it, according to this story and according to the scriptures, is a unplugging of that which was meant to originally be connected. It, it's a severance 
Interesting show, by the way. A severance of God and humans, which results in that relationship broken, and then human-to-human relationship broken, and even human-to-planet relationship broken. Read chapter 8 of this particular letter, and Paul actually says that creation itself cries out and says, please bring about renewed creation, reconciliation. So this unplugging is the first problem. It's what actually leads to all of the other problems. And so movement three I'm calling it a theological, Christological, soteriological gumbo, okay? And from, from chapters four through seven, and it's a bit of an arbitrary division, by the way. Our chapters and verses, they were not in the original letter. They're actually an early modern um, innovation. So when you see those, those aren't like inspired by the Holy Spirit. Some thinkers in the early modern era made choices. Some good ones, some not so good ones maybe. But chapters four through seven, as we, as we count them, It really is like a gumbo. I mean, Paul goes through this interesting interweaving discussion about really the mechanics of how God fixed the problem. So he opens up the gaping wound and he says, now let me share with you the cosmic story, the big meta narrative of God fixing the problem. And I'm not going to try to trace it all out with you. I'm just going to give you a few highlights. But I thought, and guess who's the sinner of that good news story of things getting fixed. Anyone want to guess who's the center of it? It's the Sunday school answer. You can't go wrong. Jesus! Yes! Always start with Jesus. And if it's not that, at least you tried. All right, so this song, this is an interesting song. It's called Passage by a band called, or an artist called uh, Linanthem. I don't know the whole work, but it's interesting. I like it because it's a mashup of like all kinds of interesting things, kind of jazz improvisation mixed with like some remix stuff. And so when you read chapters four through seven, if you're ever kind of confused, like, wait, what's, where's he, what's he talking about? Where's he going? Um, he's making a really intricate argument, but it's a lot like a jazz improvisation. He's going somewhere with it, but he's also kind of riffing in some directions that if you're not careful, you can lose your way and be like, I don't know what he's talking about. So we'll try to stay like, like drone's eye view of it while reading this delicious gumbo jazz improvisation. So hit it, Ron. I'm going to start off. Um, actually, it's, yeah, I guess it's this one. Therefore, you know, I think it's the next one wrong. I'm sorry. I gave you here it is. Oh, there it is. Excellent. <laughs> Therefore, since we've been, that was my bad. Since we've been justified through faith, verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access to faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. So we have peace with God. Jesus is that bridge, that road home, that way back. Peace with God comes through Jesus of Nazareth. How? He goes on for it. Verse 12. Just as sin entered the world through one man, and death came through that man, Adam, and all of our participation in that. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Verse 15. The gift is not like the trespass. So the gift of God isn't like the original sin. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how many more, how much more did God's grace and gift that came by grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? 
So, in other words, the sin of Adam and the sin of human rebellion, it infected so many. The faithfulness of Jesus, it was like a reverse pandemic. It was like this pandemic went out and everyone got like profoundly healthy and profoundly right and profoundly well. And it overflowed. Verse 17, for if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? And he goes on. I was going to read a little more, but for the sake of time, he says essentially in verse chapter 6, we actually, in some powerful spiritual way when you trust jesus you die with him but you come to life with him like you become interwoven with the work that he's done right kind of like like you're drafting jesus in a bike race sort of thing that's a terrible metaphor but you get sort of pulled into his momentum and his salvific work and his change that is being made on your behalf and you actually are so connected to him that his experience becomes your experience can I explain that to you? No, I'm not going to even try. Paul doesn't even try. He just says, this is the way it is. And maybe we'll understand it one day. Maybe we won't, but it's a beautiful truth. And he says, verse 8 of chapter 6, if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live, live with him. Okay, so he then moves through 7. It has some really interesting things there as well. Um, kind of looking back, I, I believe on his, his own personal struggle, his own old struggle with like, can I, how can I earn God, God's favor? He kind of reflects back like a journal entry almost. Like, I want to please God. I want to be connected with him. I want everything to be as it should be, but alas, it's not. It's, can't, I can't do it. Who will save me? I, it's like this realization, this existential human realization. I can't crawl out of my own muddy, slimy pit. I can't crawl out of the nightmare of darkness that is the depression of my sin. And then he sees this hand reaching down, this bright hand, that's my own metaphor, and just grabs him. And then we move to, I'm calling it movement four, the big gift. On Christmas morning at the pedophile's house, my wife, she had this family tradition that we, start, we, we continued, which is called the, it's called the Santa Claus gift. I'm a Christian. Okay, I know, Santa Claus. Um, and it's the big gift the kids get to see first. So it's unwrapped, and they, when they first wake up, they got to wait in their rooms until I play a certain song, and they come out and see their gift. And it's like big eyes. It's always the biggest one. It's, it's shock and awe, shock and awe. And this is kind of like chapter 8. Paul's like, all right, y'all, you ready? Who's going to save us? How's it going to work? Jesus is going to save us. So what does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for humanity? And then he says, all right, you can come out now. All right, so this song I'm putting on, one of my favorite songs. I play it, I think, every time I preach. <laughs> it's called Honor by Hans Zimmer, um, uh, Jeff Zanelli, and Blake Neely. And I'm going to read a few passages out of Romans 8. If you have to get one long tattoo... Get it of Romans 8, just the whole thing, okay? He says this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, there is now no condemnation 
no condemnation. None. No condemnation. It's over. It's gone. It's removed. It's torn out. It's lit on fire. It's obliterated. It's eviscerated. It's buried so deeply and burning up in lava. There is no condemnation. Some of you need to hear that this morning. There is no condemnation. None. The shame, the lies, the feeling that you have of God's just not happy with me. He's looking at me askance. He's just kind of a disappointed dad. That is not coming from truth, and that is definitely not coming from these scriptures. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by our own flesh, our own sin, our own weak, frail bodies and lives, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be, flesh, to be a sin offering. And he goes down in verse 9, showing some more elements of this amazing gift. You, you're not in the realm of flesh. You're in the realm of the spirit now. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, anyone doesn't have the spirit of God, they don't belong to Christ. In other words, if you belong to Christ, you have the spirit of God living in you. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Verse 14. Actually, I'll skip to my favorite verse in this whole chapter. Verse 15. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves again to fear. But the spirit you received is a spirit of adoption by which you cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit testifies with our spirit. We are now God's children. And if we're children, then we are heirs. And if we're heirs of God, then we're co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Thanks, Ron. You can pause that. Thank you so much. So this is a particularly powerful passage for me for two reasons. One, it reframes my picture of God. And I was just talking to Bill, and Bill was ministering to our staff a little bit during staff meeting this week. Uh, just on something I think a lot of us struggle with, especially maybe if you've grown up in the church or you've just been in and around Christian things, or, or you're just human. Sometimes you think about God, and the picture you have is a God who's He loves you, but He doesn't really like you. Like, He saved you, but He's, you know, a little bit regrets it. He's a little bit like, I don't know. He's a little bit disappointed with you. He's a little bit disappointed with you. And what I'm hearing in this beautiful mural, this portrait of, that Paul paints, is that we need to change that. We have to reframe the way we look and think about God. What comes up in your brain when I say the word God or Dios or Theos, if you're speaking Greek or whatever, whatever your heart language is, what comes up when I say that word is so profoundly important. And if it is not characterized by a picture of a God that says, you, my child, come to the table. Lift your chin. Let me caress your face and say, you are my child and you have all the rights of a child, including inheritance. One of the coolest moments when we adopted Zion sitting in that room and hearing that judge say those weird legalese California law rules and really insisting 
now Zion Francis Pedophiles is fully, fully your son and has every right and obligation of a child and you as parents to him, including inheritance. And I think about that sometimes. Sometimes I'll look at my little guy and I'll go, what would have happened? What would have happened if he went to a different place? What would have happened if someone hadn't made the call that needed to be made? What would have happened? And what's so beautiful is I don't have to think that. He's my boy. You want to take him from my hands? I've been training jujitsu for at least two years. I will do whatever I can to ensure over my dead body you're getting this child out of my hands. I love him. I love him with all my heart, and he is a full son of mine, including inheritance. It's so beautiful, and I just think if we're going to pause anywhere in this message, and the rest of it's going to be real short, it's right here I want to pause. Because if this is something you can capture in Romans, that all that work Jesus did on the cross in the resurrection was to get you to the place where God can put his hand on your face and say, my beautiful child, I love you. Please get that. Please know that. Whatever ghosts and haunts from your own experiences are infecting the vision of God, I want to tell you, go to the Lord this week. Go to community this week and just be like, I need to work this out. Go to therapy. Go and pursue it because I want to align with this picture of our God, inheritance. And then it ends with saying nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. He lists a bunch of stuff. He's like not height or depth or uh, present or future. Nothing can separate you from that love. Just try it. It's impossible. And then, next song. He goes through, 9 through 11 is this like interesting salvation historical journey I'm not going to get into, but it's him kind of walking through the history of Israel and its relationship with non-Israel and how in the cross the two have become one. And so it's a really cool passage I encourage you to look at. Then he gets to 12, and from 12 to 15... I'm calling it, uh, it's, this is a whole new world. This is uh, from the Royal Philharmonic Orchestral, or Orchestra playing a whole new world. So you can hit that. And he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't conform anymore to the pattern of the world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. In other words, what Jesus has done for you and bringing that relationship with you and God into that oneness has like a whole new world opened up to you now for the rest of your breathing, living, walking, sleeping, eating, talking, laughing, crying days. There is a whole new way to be human that's exciting and it's a never-ending journey with the Holy Spirit always by your side, inside, guiding, helping, encouraging. And let me just give you a taste of what this whole new world looks like. Just a little tidbits. He says things like this to the community. Here's what the whole new world looks like. Love must be sincere. Hate what's evil. Cling to what's good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another more than yourself. Don't be lacking in zeal, but with spiritual fervor, serve the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. 
If someone persecutes you in this whole new world with your knowledge that you are a child of God and you have nothing to prove and nothing to earn and nothing to show anyone, if someone persecutes you, bless them. Bless them. Don't curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud. Don't be arrogant. But be willing to like, associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Don't repay evil with evil. It goes on. Verse 13.8, let no debt remain outstanding except for the debt of love to one another. Whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. And then 14 and 15, he basically says this, in this whole new world, there's no more games of I'm the holy heavyweight and you're the new Christian lightweight. I get preferred parking and you can wait for the tram. Like this is gone, he says. In, in the community of faith, the weak and strong are on this mission to build one another up. They're actually outdoing one another. They're competing for one thing, to show honor to the other. The church community becomes, I love this line, a relational jacuzzi, a relational day spa, where when you show up to that place and you gather together, you leave feeling so seen and loved and encouraged and built up. You don't feel like, finally, I could take my mask off when I get home and I could change out of my church clothes metaphorically and I could be myself. But you feel like I've been seen with eyes of grace and truth and love I've been, my butt's been kicked a little in love like a good personal trainer sometimes does. My wounds have been healed up. I got a big old bear hug and I am living out what God has intended. And then chapter 16, it's not the final credits. Ron, hit the final song. This chapter 16 is this rad list. It's, it's a bunch of people. Paul says, all right, everyone, let us over. But I commend to you our sister Phoebe, the deacon of the church in Krenchnia, Receive her as you receive the Lord. Um, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers. Uh, greet the church that meets at their house. Greet my friend Impentus, first convert to Christ in Asia. Uh, greet Mary, who worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fe fellow Jews who've been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles. They were in Christ before I was. Greet Amphilus. Greet Urbanus. Greet Apelles. He goes on. It's like this list of greetings, and I'm entitling that section... Like, we are family. The reality is the Jesus-following life is not a solo trek into the desert to sit on a pillar. It is a parade of love, a caravan of love. It is a community thing that we work out together. When you have those spiritual conversations, those life conversations, just you bump into someone at Trader Joe's and you have a quick moment or you make a call or you send an encouraging text, this is the native, inhabit, native habitation of the Jesus following life. So chapter 16 is this like landing pad of this relational network of Paul. Okay, folks, that's the flyover of Romans as best I could do. I have no idea how long or short I went, but Ron, thanks for DJing over there. And we're going to close off in response. Now that you know the overview of the letter, we're going to get into a few chunks this week or next week. But um, we're going to close off with some worship and a chance of communion. And Rachel will introduce us to that. But let me pray as she comes up. God, thank you so very much that, Lord, we are truly your kids. That you have made a way. You didn't leave us and abandon us. You made a way for us to be at your table and to live our lives 
the way they were meant to be lived, to truly live in a whole new world and to be alive. And God, I pray right now for those sitting out here who have a view of you, whether they know you or not, whether this is their first time at church or their thousandth time, and their picture of you is somehow distorted and scarred and marred, that even this morning, you could kind of erase, start erasing that picture. And you would paint a new portrait that looks a lot more like the God who says, there is no condemnation. You call me Abba Father. You are my child with all rights and privileges, including inheritance. We love you, Lord. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why don't we stand together as we get to worship together to close off our time.
just walked us through the book of Romans. He walked us through the redemptive story of God that we're invited into through trusting him. And one of the ways that we do that, one of the ways that we continue to align our hearts to what God has done for us in Jesus is to just take time to pause, to take stock, to recenter our hearts before his, to do some business with God. And so right now, in between kind of our songs here, we'll sing one more in a moment, but before we close, let's just take some time to reflect, to listen, to respond to God in faith. I'm gonna walk us through just a time of, of prayer and reflection. And so right now, close your eyes, you can open your eyes, look out over the ocean, whatever feels comfortable to you. But just take a moment, and, uh, and James unpacked for us the diagnosis of Romans, that like what he called the gushing wound of humanity, that we know there's something that's not quite right. And that is that that thing is it's what the writers of scripture called sin. It's this pull of our hearts to try and find life in places other than God, to, to use the language of Romans 1, to worship something created rather than the creator. And so right now we're gonna take some time of reflection and just ask ourselves. Is there anything that we need to acknowledge before God? Any way that we have centered our lives around something other than him? And any thought or action or word that was against what God has designed for us? Anything that we just need to bring into the light before God? And so right now, we'll just have a time of quiet reflection. If there's anything that comes to mind, anything that you just need to acknowledge before God, know that it's safe to do so because of the grace that we talked about, the, the culminating beauty of Romans 8 that we'll read here again in a moment bring everything into light, knowing that we have nothing to lose because of the grace of our God. But right now, let's just take a moment. If there's any, anything from the last couple days uh, that's just kind of this thing stand out, out there that is unacknowledged before God. Any uh, word that you ought not have said, thing you ought not have thought, uh, action you ought not have done, anything at all. Just take a moment to acknowledge it before God. To confess, to use the language of Scripture. If there's any fear or insecurity or anxiousness, it's not sin, it's not wrong to feel, to, to feel burden, to feel fear, to feel insecure, but maybe there's something that you're just not letting God hold yet. Just take a moment to let God hold that with you, to acknowledge it before him, to name a fear, name of insecurity, name a point of anxiousness and an act of trust of him, knowing that his shoulders are broad enough and his heart is big enough to take our unfiltered self at our worst. So if there's anything that you need to just name before God that's just holding you back from full trust in him, it's a distraction in your mind or something that you're just not, not yet letting him hold, let's name that as well.
now just in that place of having done some honest business with, before God, of having considered, having reflected, having named areas of brokenness in our lives, hear the truth of God's word for everyone in Christ Jesus. The truest thing about us is what God says is true. Here's what he says. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And now fast forward to the end of Romans 8, starting in verse 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The truest thing about us is what God says is true. So let's pray. We'll respond with one more song in worship, and then we'll have some time to kind of reflect and take communion on our own and connect and hang out together as we close our service. But you guys pray with me one more time. God, we love you. We praise you for the truth that you speak over us, that there's no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus, that there's nothing but love that we can never be separated from, that the heart, the very heart of God for us is his love for us that holds us. We praise you for that truth, God praise you that though we haven't earned it, though we've earned anything but it, we have your love, we have you forever. God, we just uh, align our hearts with yours. We remember what's true. We remember where the good life is. It's with you. And uh, Lord, we worship you in response. We want to live our lives differently, not because we have anything to earn or prove, but because we found where life is and we trust you when you say that there's a way to live that is for our good, for the world's good, for the forming of our hearts to be the kind of men and women we were always made to be. We praise you, God. We love you. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Sunset free. 
and remembering that nothing can separate us from our God, that we are in relationship with him, that he loves us enough to give his only son. So as we take, partake of the bread and the wine, let us remember, let us thank him. Amen? So take in your own time, we'll play a couple more choruses as you partake the elements. And I am chosen, not forsaken. 